You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7pm. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is US Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spalding, expert on China, author of the books Stealth War and War Without Rules. Political Periscope. Reading your book about this war without any borders, without any rules, without any limits, one can have this feeling, maybe impression, maybe wrong impression, that uh, the conventional war is a thing of a past. But right now in Ukraine, we observe a conventional conflict with cannons, with tanks, with storming troops. So is it really a thing of the past? No, I don't think war um, in the traditional sense is a thing of the past, um, unless you're talking about two opponents who have nuclear weapons. And then I think um, if we do have a war between two countries that have nuclear weapons, we risk uh, catastrophic destruction of the planet uh, and possibly humanity. And so I think um, this is what the PLA colonels recognize, that you know China needed nuclear weapons, they needed to uh, deter a nuclear attack on China, or they needed to deter a conventional attack by uh, a, a nation like the United States. But if they had nuclear weapons, then it would probably not be you know, wise to have a war in the traditional sense with the United States or any other developed nation that had nuclear weapons. And therefore, um, in addition to that, globalization, the internet provided a number of opportunities that didn't exist Uh, prior to uh, the internet and prior to, you know, the end of the Cold War. So you think that the only conflicts, mm, conventional, traditional conflicts, are possible between states that at least one of them doesn't possess nuclear weapons? Right, yeah. Regarding this, is Russia a real threat today for the United States or it's just China? Well, I think Russia has uh, a nuclear arsenal that certainly would um, rival the United States and in some cases is even more advanced than the U.S.'s because we've been uh, lax in upgrading our technology uh, when it comes to nuclear weapons. That being said, the conflict in Ukraine is between Ukraine and Russia, Russia having nuclear weapons, Ukraine not having nuclear weapons, and so... I think what we're depending on is the restraint uh, of the Russians, and that concerns me, particularly as we uh, create a scenario where Putin uh, feels embarrassed or cornered. Um, I think that's the potential where we see um, that a nuclear weapon could be used. And I, so I think that when it comes to a um, a war, in, in this case I would call it a proxy war, so Ukraine uh, and Russia are fighting a proxy war for the second Cold War, I think we, we create, and we understood this during the first Cold War, we were very careful um, in terms of how we approached both the Korean conflict and the Vietnam War, in terms of 
creating the opportunity for um, nuclear weapons to be used, either by China or Russia. In, uh, in the case of the Korean War, I don't think the Chinese had uh, nuclear weapons, and I can't remember the exact date that they um, detonated their first weapon. Um, but certainly they had them uh, during the Vietnam War. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we had uh, rules of engagement with regard to uh, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And so I think that's the thing that we've lost sight of, I think, with the Ukraine war. And um, there is this feeling, I think, and, it's, and it's a, I, th I believe it's a dangerous feeling that the Russians can be completely defeated in Ukraine uh, without creating the risk for nuclear, uh, the use of nuclear weapons. And I think that's wrong. I think that's, you know, probably... Um, the closest that we will be, we will come in the near term to the potential for a nuclear weapon to be used. You said it's dangerous to beat Russian army, right, on the battlefield, but maybe there is another way to beat Russia, maybe using mm, those techniques, uh, this uh, war without limits, the war described in your book. Well, so here's the problem, uh, at least as it pertains to Russia. Um, you know, we created sanctions against Russia, and then the, the Chinese have basically been providing them a means to escape those sanctions. China, uh, Iran, North Korea. So Russia has, through China, the means to continue this war indefinitely. In fact, you know, the, the Chinese just recently sent armored vehicles to Russia. So, and this is the, the really um, crazy thing about the war in Ukraine is that while we are supplying uh, weapons and arms to Ukraine, and I support that, by continuing to allow China to be part of the global economy and get resources from the West, we are essentially now providing resources to both sides of the war. So in a sense, by allowing China to be part of globalization, we are prolonging the war because they have the ability to use that connection, that global connection, uh, to support a sanctioned Rus Russia. Don't you fear that one ongoing war in Ukraine can provoke, can spark other wars in the world, uh, other conflicts uh, such as between Iran and Afghanistan or somewhere else in the Middle East, some in Africa, or even uh, China attacking Taiwan? Well, I don't know that it's the um, war in Ukraine that's sparking it so much as we have a definite um, bipolar world evolving where on one side you have China in the lead, you have Russia, um, Iran, and North Korea and the Belt and Road Initiative as proxy states for China. And so, yeah, we could see wars, um, you know, start along the Belt and Road Initiative countries, um, you know, with Russia and other states in Eastern Europe, um, with uh, Korea, uh, with Iran, with uh, China, and the, the states that border its country. So, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely potential for warfare, a traditional warfare, to break out at any time uh, during this the second Cold War, as we had during the first Cold War, I think the the thing that people have really failed to grasp is that we are in a Cold War, and that a Cold War uh, creates proxy wars on the periphery where the two main opponents are um, are leery 
of coming into direct conflict, direct military conflict, because of the potential danger uh, for nuclear war. Uh, well, I maybe wasn't too precise. I meant that uh, one ongoing war creates uh, some ambience when the war is allowed. There is one war, so we have already a war, so why not starting another? Uh, but you answered basically my question. So do you think it may lead to the Third World War? Can we experience it in our lives? Well, I think this is the risk that we faced during the first Cold War. And um, as opposed to uh, now, back then, I think we had um, a much better appreciation for the destructive capability of nuclear weapons. We still were in the, um, in the shadow of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We still had people that were very aware of how dangerous these weapons were and are. And I think what, what's different about today is that we are so far away from Hiroshima and Nagasaki that political leaders have lost their fear of nuclear weapons. And this is a thing that I think is, is terrifying to me, not having a good dose of fear about the use of nuclear weapons and the potential for escalation if they start to be used and where that escalation might end. You know, I think this is the thing that we should be focused on right now. So, you know, in, in many cases, I think the Chinese Communist Party came up with a way of war that doesn't risk nuclear warfare. But as you see, you know, with this Cold War, you know, conflicts like Ukraine and Russia can happen. And those can be the ways that nuclear war or World War III, to your point, becomes ignited. How can we we as democracies protect ourselves against authoritarian states such as Russia, such as China. We cannot control everything. One of the points, I think main points of your book is that uh, our command structure is um, too scattered. It's not uh, unified. We cannot coordinate effectively functioning of different services, the security services, uh, army, uh, etc. So can we even protect ourselves as democracies? Well, I think there's two parts to that. One, you know, do you know, do we want to preserve the free world? Uh, do we want to preserve the principles and values of the free world? If we do, we have to isolate ourselves from the totalitarian regimes. We cannot have contact with them. We can't have uh, media contact. We can't have financial contact. We can't have political contact. Uh, within our societies because they use those contacts to undermine the very fabric of our uh, free societies. So that's number one. And we, uh, we did that well during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. We need to allow their systems to be isolated in order for the, um, the fact that their systems are not efficient at allocating resources and being productive unless they have access to the West. And that's number one. I think number two is, yes, we can defend free societies in, in, in that regard, and we showed it during the first Cold War, and that is to promise massive retaliation for any attack on an allied country. And I think that's the way that we have to begin to think about the world. We have to um, essentially separate clearly between totalitarian regimes and free societies and allow the citizens of the free societies to thrive to allow them to, you know, uh, reach their true, you know, uh, potential. 
uh, have productivity, have freedom, and then allow the citizens of those countries that are in totalitarian states to witness the free world thriving and understand that their system is actually flawed and not um, not conducive to providing for economic prosperity and the ability to live your true potential. And they, this has to go on for some period of time. We saw that during the first Cold War. It's not immediate. Um, unfortunately, what we have today, because uh, China and the rest of the authoritarian regimes, except for like North Korea and now Russia and Iran, uh, are plugged into the global trading system, the global financial system, the global political system. And they're slowly eroding the principles and values of free societies, both in the international system, like the UN, uh, but also in domestically in the political systems of our own societies. So, you know, today, U.S. corporations and financial institutions, you know, with their relationships with China, are slowly eroding the very fabric of American society in a way that's counterproductive for us maintaining our principles and values. So this will go on, and it has been going on for the last three decades, and I think it will go on until we begin to separate ourselves, our nations, from the totalitarian regimes. Don't allow them to have trade, uh, financial, media, political, uh, internet connections into our societies, and then allow our societies to begin to heal from these uh, in interferences and influences from these societies, and then provide a you know capability to thoroughly um, destroy our adversaries if they challenge us in in a traditional military sense, and let that Cold War just continue and and until there is a um, until there's a realization. Uh, from the citizens that live in those regions of totalitarianism, that that is not the proper way to be, and then they begin the process of of deconstruction. Deconstructing. That's what happened during the first Cold War, and I think that can happen again during the second Cold War, but not until we have this clean separation. It was a bit of a surprise for me that such interesting and important doctrine, Chinese doctrine, was was made public. Should we? make our doctrines, our strategies, our plans public because we are democracies or should we should it rather be should we rather be limited to, to some part of society, to government or maybe some experts? No, I think the, um, the the real strength of our system is our ability to be transparent and to trust our citizens with the truth. And I think that's the difference between a free society. Certainly, our citizens can disagree, and they should have the ability to disagree with government. That's that's why, you know, for instance, the United States Constitution, you know, is organized the way it is. And I think um, the the real change here, though, uh, is the introduction of the internet. And I think in that case, um, data, particularly the da the personal data of citizens, needs to be secured. It needs to be encrypted. It needs to be the domain of the citizen themselves. And I think we've used this um, terror uh, of, you know, or this fright around terrorism as a means to justify having access to citizen data in a free society. That was never the intent. And I think um, as we, you know, move farther and farther into this technological era where data allows you to understand the perceptions, behaviors, 
intentions of citizens. And then, um, and then we have both corporations and governments and financial organizations that seek to manipulate those perceptions, behaviors, and intentions. I think we, we create the, the type of future that sees the principles and values of democracy being eroded by that technological system. And, you know, clearly this is what the Chinese Communist Party saw, and this is what they wrote. In that, in that document, Unrestricted Warfare. But we were slow to come around. You know, we believe that you know, the Internet was going to be uh, a morally good uh, technology for humanity. In reality, it's become exactly the opposite. But the reason it's become the opposite is because citizens have lost control of their private privacy, which is through the use of their data. And so I think... You know, what we fail to understand is the use of massive, massive language models, um, big data, and artificial intelligence to begin to transform this mountain of data into usable information that then could be used to manipulate our population at the individual level. And so, you know, technologically speaking, I believe that the Internet ought to be secured. Your data ought to be encrypted. You should be the only one to have keys. If the government thinks that you are guilty of a crime, they can have their own you know, systems that are designed to listen to your calls, but they have to go through the same process that we used to have to go to before the Internet. They have to get a warrant from a court. That, that process for getting a warrant you know, has to be clear to everybody involved, and then they have to go through the, the process of placing those bugs in locations based on that warrant, and then they have to build a case. But they can't just, you know, on the basis of this system that exists, you know, hit the rewind button and have total access to your life, because that is a recipe for totalitarianism. But what about the strategies, security strategies? To what degree should they be made public? To what degree should they be hidden? Um, so our, our enemies, the countries that... Uh, and dangerous cannot see them well for the most part um our strategy with regard to the soviet union was fairly uh well known and uh and and and, and, and well understood i think there are some things that you want to keep secret uh particularly um some of the more you know what i say exotic ways that you might go about undermining a regime uh, you know using the tools of the state but for the most part, I think the, the, we can be very transparent about what our strategy is, and that is a strategy of isolation, economic isolation, you know, people-to-people uh, know, -people isolation, basically a separation of the two groups to you know, allow the citizens of those other countries to understand that the, the regimes that they live under are are basically there only to promote themselves. They're not there to promote the average citizen. And in fact, leveraging globalization to, pr to promote uh, prosperity like the Chinese have done is a tactic of controlling the population. In other words, we trade you jobs uh, for your political obedience. And the way that we give you jobs is by raiding or taking from the free societies because they think that, you know, we're, we're going to play by the rules. 
What do you think about uh, Joe Biden's policy, security policy, especially towards Russia and China? Do you think he can be influenced uh, by some strange connections? Well, I think he is already influenced. He's influenced because Washington, D.C. is influenced. For example, the companies and the, and the organizations and the law firms are not primarily Chinese. They're primarily American or multinational. And essentially, they're lobbying on behalf of policies that the Chinese Communist Party wants because we've allowed them to create these uh, financial, trade, you know, economic, you know, political connections. And, you know, they, they have connections to our think tanks. They have connections to our PR firms and our law firms. They have connections to our corporations and financial institutions. And so when you look at any policy Uh, in the United States that comes forth in the Congress that's designed to protect us from Chinese influence, those get watered down by, you know, our own companies, our own people. So, you know, that's how unrestricted warfare works. It works through uh, the, the people and the organizations of the country. It's not um, that, you know, you have Chinese that are influencing, certainly that exists, But the vast majority comes from Americans and other, um, you know, citizens of other free societies themselves, where they're trying to enrich themselves, which, you know, is okay in a capitalist society. But in the way they're enriching themselves, that way has been influenced by the Chinese Communist Party to ensure the outcomes benefit the party. And so any protective measures like, uh, you know, Uh, stopping trade or stopping financial integration or any of these things that the Chinese Communist Party used to get jobs in China it is, you know, essentially comes under attack from our own companies. Let's get back to the war in Ukraine. What is China's attitude toward towards this war and uh, what are current Chinese goals in this war? Yes, very plain. They do not want Russia to lose. And so they want to make sure that Russia does not lose. And so they will support Russia to the extent that, um, you know, Russia is successful in its goals. And I think if you were to look, you know, look now uh, at Russian goals uh, after over a year of conflict, they've probably been moderated a bit um, rather than seeking the overthrow of the Ukrainian regime. They likely would um be happy with some territory in and maintaining that territory and of course ukraine doesn't want this and so this is the conundrum that we find ourselves in oh by the way it's the same conundrum we had during the korean war which was really the first uh proxy war of the first cold war and it ha and it evolved in much the same way there was a lot of back and forth uh, before we uh, reached an armistice and Um, there's no uh, cease, there's no um, peace yet on the Korean Peninsula. We are still in, in an enforced armistice. And so I think um, if, you know, if we're going to avert the risk of nuclear war, then the way that that gets averted is through some, um, you know, negotiated armistice, not a peace, not a recognition that any of Ukrainian territory belongs to Russia, just a recognition that we're not going to kill people over it, um, you know, until we can have a, a, a resolution that's more final. And that final resolution has to do with the destruction, eventual destruction of co communism and totalitarianism. 
in countries like Russia and China. Now, Russia, who knows? They may, you know, may see the um, the Putin regime fall, you know, when he's gone, and then you may see, um, you know, an opening of, of Russia. Who knows? We don't know how this uh, how this ideological Cold War will play out. But certainly, as long as the Chinese Communist Party is involved, it will be instigating. You know, their their goal is to get more and more countries to adopt their brand of of, of political system. Not to become Chinese, per se, but certainly to become authoritarian, where the citizens no longer dictate, um, you know, the society that they have, but rather the, the society they have is dictated to citizens. On one hand, you said that China doesn't want Russia to lose, but on the other hand, we see that weakening of Russia makes space for Chinese influence in Central Asia. Yes, absolutely. And I think you're going to see that. Um, just like the Soviet Union was kind of all-consuming of former Soviet states, I think China is going to exert more and more influence on the governing of its um, of its proxies. And I would call Russia today a proxy of China. You think China allowed this war to happen? Well, you know, Putin went to uh, China and had a meeting with Beijing prior to the invasion. I guarantee you that he told Xi Jinping he was going to invade. Uh, and this is the same thing, by the way, that uh, uh, Kim Jong-il did in the Korean War. He went to Moscow, he went to Beijing, and he said, I want to start this war. And they gave them the approval to go ahead. So uh, I definitely believe that Putin asked permission from Xi and was given permission. Is China going to attack Taiwan? Yes. So when? I, I, I don't know, but uh, I would say uh, it very much depends on the U.S. presidential election and um, how China thinks that that is going to turn out. So if China attacks Taiwan, U.S. is going to intervene or not? Uh, we can't. It's, it, it, it could uh, you know, devolve into nuclear conflict. And so... I think the um, the role of the United States when it comes to an invasion of Taiwan would be to uh, allow for the evacuation of those American citizens on Taiwan and those Taiwanese people that want to escape the uh, the rule of communist China. I think that's the way that we would intervene, um, and that would be a negotiated intervention where um, much in the same way that... Um, the U.S. intervened during the blockade of Berlin. So, you know, we we basically negotiated the ability to resupply the people of Berlin until eventually uh, the Soviet Union relented. And so I think this would be, you know, something uh, very similar. Um, although I think in the case of um, China, it's hard to say You know, they have the ability to, within just a very uh, few hours of, of totally dominating Taiwan, and I think it would be very difficult for us to do anything about that, even if we wanted to try. Um, so it will, we will have to figure out a way to work with China to allow for the evacuation of those people that want to be evacuated. Polish famous expert on geopolitics, Jacek Bartosiak, often mentions his conversations with you and are you familiar with his work, with his ideas and what do you think about his ideas? 
Um, I can't say off the top of my head that I, I, I recognize the name, um, uh, but I've had a number of conversations with um, uh, um, organizations and people from Poland, uh, and I think um, you know. I think generally, um, if you know they are consistent with what I'm saying now, which is no, has not changed at all. Uh, from my position um, that I've had consistently with regard to China and Russia and totalitarianism versus democracy, then yes, I think it's, uh, you know, it would be appropriate to say that I would agree with his views. I, again, I don't, I can't say, you know, right now that I, that I um, recognize all his views. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 